Hey everyone, just a quick announcement. ThoughtBot is running a free online event about how to internationalize your Rails app. During this event, we'll cover the exact steps you need to take to get your code base in top shape for translation, localization mistakes that will destroy your credibility, tools and techniques that guarantee high quality results in every language, and how to keep your multilingual product up to date. This event will take place on October 28th at noon Eastern time and is being hosted by our very own Chad Pytel and Christopher Dell, the founder and CEO of Locale. To register for this free event, be sure to check out the link in the show notes. Hope to see you there. I think you still hear me, which is groovy. Yeah, yeah, we do. No. Yay. Tom? No. (laughs) Tom, what are you, Tom? (laughs) Tom. The worst. The worst. (laughs) Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Steph Vickery. And I'm Chris Toomey. And together, we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So, hey, Chris, uh, it's been a while since we've chatted. How's your week? How's your past two weeks been? It has been a while, yeah. Uh, so you've, you've been on the move. Uh, you have literally moved, and thus we uh, skipped a week in there in the middle. But yeah, how, how's your move, frankly? I'm interested in that. It's been, uh, frankly, exhausting. Mm. <laughs> it's been it's been really great. Everything has happened smoothly. Uh, there wasn't anything that was broken. We haven't lost any items. So overall, it's been a very positive experience, but it's just been exhausting. I've drank more monster energy drinks than I care to admit to, which is just, you know, any number more than one in my book. <laughs> but... But we've made it. We've moved across a couple states. We made it to South Carolina, and we're slowly getting settled in. Well, that's awesome. I'm glad you're down there, and uh, you've got a new space to explore and a new town and all those sort of things. So, yeah, I hope to hear more of your adventures in the South in the coming episodes. But otherwise, in my world, uh, the world is turning to fall very suddenly, and there's there's very dark, ominous sky and lots of leaves falling and things like that. It's uh, somewhat funny, I think. Uh, We have a Trello board where we manage ideas. And two weeks ago, when we were planning this episode, I wrote down the question, where do you fall on spring? And then I read that later, and I was completely confused. I thought I didn't write it. I thought it was actually Tom making a pun, because look at me talking about seasons. But no, I was actually, it was a real question that I had. So I want to now revisit that question. Spring, the application preloader in Rails. Where do you fall on that? Are you a fan? Are you opposed? I think I'm in a a rare camp, but I'm intrigued where you're at. Well, to address your pun, I do think spring is probably the worst season out of all the seasons, which I realize is a strong take, but I feel passionate about it. So I'm going to go with it. Spring is the worst season. That's your stance. That's my stance. That is a heck of a stance. That's all I've got to say on the matter. And then in technical terms for the actual Rails application preloader, I have been burned by spring enough times that I'm very wary of it. I like the idea. I would love to be resold on using spring because I want my tests to be really fast. I want that snappy behavior. So I really like the idea of it, but there have been enough times where I've been running tests and seeing where tests were failing. And it's just because it hadn't actually reloaded the changes that I had or something else had gone awry to where then I would waste like 10 minutes thinking that my code was wrong when in fact stopping spring and restarting it was the actual fix and realizing that everything was fine. So I'd love to be resold on it. So I'm going to come into this with a very opened mindset to hear your pitch for spring. Because I think, as you mentioned, like you're a fan. 
I am a fan, uh, but I recently was sort of exploring it. The project that I was working on had Spring enabled for some things, but not for tests. And so I had a weird, uncanny valley, worst possible experience with Spring, where I will occasionally set the database URL, like that environment variable, and then open up a Rails console. And so I'm connecting off into staging to have a more representative data set working in the console. And then I'm done with that session. I'll close the console, but then I'll reopen it a little bit later in development mode. I just want to you know, work with my local database, but I'm sneakily still connected to staging. And that is a failure mode that is so bad. I never connect to production that way because it's so dangerous to do that. But still, it's enough of a surprise and enough of a, whoa, 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 what's going on? Oh, God, why are there 3 million users? I expect 4 users. And so that experience, I'm I'm very empathetic to the idea that Spring can mislead you and be confusing. And in that particular case, I'm actually surprised that it behaves the way that it does. I wouldn't expect it to sort of close over that environment variable from the command line. So I'm typing like database URL equals blah, 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 some big Postgres string bin Rails console. And then I close that and then I reopen it later. And basically, it's initializing with that value. And then Rails is still running the background via Spring because that's what it does. But I was surprised by that behavior. And then I want to say like migrations were also running through it. So some of the other Rails commands were running through it, but RSpec was not. So we were not using Spring for RSpec. And that was just the worst. That was the exact opposite of what I wanted. And so I did a quick poll on Twitter. I was like, hey, I think the thing that I want is just Spring for tests, just for RSpec, but never for anything else. I am so happy to wait those 10 seconds to start up the console whenever I do it, because I start up the console rarely, a few times a day, maybe. So it's fine to pay the penalty of those 10 seconds to start up Rails for correctness. But in testing, I really, really desperately want that fast iteration loop. I want to be able to do test-driven development for real. I want to be able to then refactor, change something just a little bit, change it a little bit, and keep running the test. And the smaller that loop is, the better. But I've definitely noticed like, I'm a person whose brain can wander. And so if it takes 10 seconds to run a test, I'm switching to Twitter. It's what's going to happen, for being honest, if we're telling our truths here on this Friday. So when I made that switch, I removed Spring from everything else. So there's no more Rails console spring there's no more migration spring or anything like that but i do have it enabled for rspec and it has been fantastic that is exactly what i want and i haven't run into any of the issues in test mode i'm also more okay with it there i might lose a little bit of time but never do anything really really wrong but yeah that's sort of where i'm at on it now that really amuses me the idea that we're training ourselves to have such fast feedback where it's like well if we don't have fast feedback we're just going to wander and we're going to go explore other things <laughs> i can't imagine i'm alone in this but yes that is the truth of my world i'm working on it i really want to regain anyway <laughs> i'm positive you're not alone in this i do it as well i don't think twitter's the thing that i visit i have to keep track of what's like sort of my like squirrel like the thing that i'm like i go and look at every now and then whenever i have a moment the story that you were sharing about where it was storing the staging Postgres database URL is uh, even more terrifying to me. I hadn't run into that with Spring, so I certainly share that sentiment where you only want it for the test. So what was the result from your Twitter poll where you said that you could only have it for tests? Is that very easy to set up or what are the internals for like how we can have Spring just for tests? And then have you also, so I have a two-part question for you. One, how'd you get it done? (laughs) And then two, have you run into that situation where your tests are lying to you? Because I like what you said a moment ago of paying that penalty for correctness, where granted, it's not something that we want to have to do if we can avoid it. But at the same time, if I feel like there aren't other options, I'm with you that I'd rather have that correctness. Yeah. So for the first one, the main solution basically involved uh, removing Spring from the application and then reinstalling it, but only Springifying RSpec. 
So the spring commands RSpec is a separate gem. I installed that and I springified the bin stub for RSpec and then I run the test through that. So if anyone else runs like bundle exec RSpec, I think it will not actually invoke spring. So it's only the one bin stub. So if I run bin RSpec, blah, 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 then I'm getting the spring behavior. But if I just run RSpec or bundle exec RSpec or any of those variants, then won't necessarily get it. Actually, you probably have bin stubs automatically added to your path. So in your case, or in the case of anyone who's working like that, the files have that. Uh, so perhaps a handful of folks do, then they would automatically inherit this behavior. I don't know of a way to opt out of it. But yeah, that, that's the idea is it's just springifying RSpec, but not Rails. The Rails bin stub does not have the spring addition. So that worked and does the thing that I want. Then to the question of have I run into the issues I have to imagine that I have, but I find it interesting that I don't have a visceral memory of it. Like I hear a lot of people talking about it and they have this angst and this ire of like, oh man, I lost I lost hours to that. And I definitely have other things that have had that behavior. Uh, caching turned on and I didn't know about it. It's like, oh God, that just cost me three hours. But I can't remember a specific time specific to testing and spring. Uh, mostly that experience is fantastic and especially because i'm typically trying to focus down on some subset of the system when i'm doing a real like tdd iterative loop sort of thing so i have this new class that's a command object sort of thing that i'm working with or a query object or some smaller subset of the system and i'm just focusing on that and it tends to work out really well and that additional speed is just so valuable to me that i'm I'm happy to make that trade-off but i do recognize that it is a trade-off and i also think i have a sense for when the cache may have been like invalidated incorrectly or hasn't been invalidated. I'm always expecting the failure when I run a test. I either expect it to fail for a specific reason or I expect it to pass. And if ever it doesn't behave that way, disabling spring is one of the things that's on my list, but I, you know, I, I can dial into that pretty quickly. So I don't I don't have a memory of being led too far astray, but I'm sure it's happened and I'm probably just glossed over it because it's so valuable to me to get the rapid iteration and the happy 95% of the time. Yeah, this feels like one of those tools where I would gladly try it out again, because I feel like when I was burned, honestly, it was probably a while ago. I just still have like those feelings like that ire from back in the day for however long ago it was that I used it, then I would lose time for it. It also became one of those habitual, like something didn't seem right about my test. So I was immediately reaching to like stop spring and restart it to see if it fixed it. And I didn't like that pattern that I was creating of like this tool that's supposed to be helping me was now becoming this one additional like debugging step before I could really check to see if my code was working. But I would be game to bring it back into my workflow and then see how it goes and wait for that moment to occur because maybe it'll be great and I won't run into it and I'll just get the benefits. Otherwise, I can keep track of when it does happen because I would be intrigued to yeah, to revisit to see how often that sort of issue occurs. And if I can just have, you know, all the cake and icing and none of the pain, that's not a phrase, but now it is. <laughs> I think there's <laughs> there's an interesting idea in there where like Spring broke your trust at some point, and then from then on, you had to question whether or not Spring was at fault. And I don't know, there's sort of an allegory for life in there. Like if you break expectations, if you break that critical trust that you've built up, then you're going to keep paying for that for a while. And so, uh, yeah, it's interesting. But uh, anyway, uh, strong recommend. I love Spring, but I, I do realize that I'm probably a little bit different. I value that feedback loop so, so highly that I'm willing to make some trade-offs, whereas no amount of speed up is worth possibly closing over the database URL in the Rails console. Like, please, God, never, ever do that. Start fresh, take a minute, rebuild the universe, but get it right. Don't ever connect to the wrong environment, please. 
Well, if I'm on a Rails project coming up soon, then I'll bring it back into my workflow and I'll keep you updated on how it goes. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is quickly becoming my go-to performance monitoring tool for Rails apps. I love opening it up to see a prioritized list of issues that I can quickly knock out before end users ever see them. With the weekly digest and alerts, I can rest easy knowing that Scout will let me know if issues arise. Ultimately, Scout APM empowers developers to spend more time building great products by minimizing the effort required to identify and resolve performance issues. Scout's developer-centric approach quickly pinpoints N plus one queries, memory bloat, and other abnormalities. Their tracing logic saves me a ton of time by tying bottlenecks back to the line of code causing the issue. Give Scout a try for free today, and you'll have the performance insights you've been dreaming of within four minutes. Sign up through scoutapm.com slash bikeshed, and Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. So give it a try, and thanks again to Scout for sponsoring this episode of The Bike Shed. So changing gears just a little bit, or to circle back two days before we started the move, which feels like forever ago. But during those days, I ran into some interesting errors while I was setting up like a new project on my machine. And specifically, I was running into what seemed to be related to like upgrading to Catalina for my Mac OS, and then also working with OpenSSL and Homebrew and some oddities around there. I feel like most people probably ran into these errors like maybe six to 12 months ago since Catalina has been out for a little while. And it seems like some of these issues were introduced probably a while back, but I have been using a client's laptop for a while. So now as I've transitioned back to my ThoughtBot laptop, I'm going through and I'm upgrading and bringing it up to date. So I've been encountering some of those issues, which on one hand is nice because the world has worked through a number of those problems for me. On the other hand, I still really struggled with this one and I'm curious if you ran into it. So to provide a bit of context, there seemed to be two changes that were impacting a number of people and applications. The first one is that Mac OS removed OpenSSL and switched to LibreSSL and Homebrew upgraded from using OpenSSL version 1.1 and removed version 1.0, or maybe it's just an upgrade. It's, it's probably still available for folks to use it. So Apple's announcement where they plan on deprecating the use of OpenSSL was back in like 2011. And so it seems like something that they've been migrating towards. And I was surprised that I was running into it now. And honestly, through the number of errors that I've been through, I can't say concretely if that played a drastic role. Uh, but just for fun, I dug into a little bit of trying to understand because the errors caused me enough pain that at that point I was like, well, I'd really like to understand some of like what happened and what has changed in the Apple world and also with Homebrew. So when Apple decided that they were going to deprecate their use of OpenSSL, the main reason seems to be because it didn't offer a stable application interface or a stable API. So the data structures were changing in between minor releases, and that would result in a number of people having breaking changes on their end because something had changed internally, even though it was such a small minor upgrade. There is a video uh, presentation that I saw back from like the 2011 Apple WWDC that highlights this decision to move on from OpenSSL. So if anyone's particularly interested in those details, then we can link it in the show notes. The error that I was running into, I'm going to read the error. It's not very friendly, but we're going to walk through it. So the error is DYLD, which is short for dynamic loader, library not loaded, and then it has a path. And for me, it's something like user local and then open SSL. And then it's a particular library within open SSL where it's looking for lib SSL. And it's like some version dot DY lib. 
So the DYLib is short for Dynamic Library, and that's something that I'm not terribly familiar with. So I poked at that as well and discovered that similar to how we use functions and we create blocks for usable code, we can do the same with libraries where they're reused across multiple applications and programs. So you can have static libraries uh, that are used across programs, but they're locked into the program at compile time. So making a change to that static library then requires recompiling that program to use the updated library. And dynamic libraries offer the advantage of being found at runtime. So making a change to a dynamic library doesn't require recompiling that program because it, the dynamic loader will find that required library. So sort of revisiting that error, it meant that Apple's dynamic loader couldn't find some library, an open SSL library that's a dynamic library that it should have been able to find at runtime. So the solution for this isn't sexy, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> but, you know, it's uh, based on life, and this is how it went down. For me specifically, it seemed that the resolution that I needed was to reinstall OpenSSL. So I don't know if some of the packages that I'd had prior installed for OpenSSL were then conflating or being confused with something else. Um, I also did need the new version so I could upgrade to like uh, OpenSSL's version 1.1. So I ran brew install since I'm using brew to manage those packages. I ran brew install OpenSSL at 1.1. That process did hang for me. So I thought it failed. So I eventually, I just let it run for a while, eventually canceled it. And then I kept researching for other ways to install OpenSSL, this new version. But then I finally ran brew info OpenSSL because I was like, well, let me just see exactly what I have and confirm that it's still not installed. And I found out that even though it looked like it hung, it actually had installed the new package for me. And once I verified that it was installed, that all those library not loaded, unable to load errors that I was seeing pop up everywhere for a number of open SSL libraries were resolved. So thankfully, it was like a fairly easy fix. I, I will add one other caveat. I did uninstall OpenSSL completely to the best that I could. I tried to find all appearances of it and used brew uninstall and then just verify that it did its job before reinstalling or adding installing the new version. So it comes down to like the resolution wasn't too bad, but I spent a long time like reading about this issue, trying to understand what it was that my packages couldn't find, why it was looking for these packages, what was the issue between, was it related to Catalina where they switched or previous versions of macOS where they'd switched over from OpenSSL to LibreSSL. But I learned a few things along the way, like these static and dynamic libraries and some new file extensions that I, I wasn't aware of before. And things are working now, which is great, but it still feels like one of those errors that like, I understand this one more, but should someone else run into this problem down the road, I'd love to then help them debug it to like really solidify my understanding of what went wrong with my environment. Cause I was getting close where I was just very frustrated because I was just trying to get a project up and running. And I was like, I wish I could just nuke everything and like start over at this point. But I, I didn't do that. I kept my cool. Now, there's a, a bunch of little pieces in there that I feel like are common anti-patterns, like the generic error that almost certainly the program maintainer better understands than you. So like dynamic libraries, we don't work with them in general. They're part of the stack that we use, but we don't know about them. We're not working with them. So seeing that in an error is like, what? what would you say that means? I don't know how to fix that. That's not a thing that I do. Or the lack of a progress meter in that one install. And so you're like, did this work or not? God, that's the worst feeling in the world. Those times where the upgraded progress bar is like, it's going to take 30 minutes, never mind six years. Oh God, the computer just went black. What's happening? Oh God. 
And just each of those little experiences. And again, I think there's like very clear parallels to the applications that we're writing, trying to give feedback to the users, trying to explain things in terms that they can understand and not Postgres did not have a blah, blah, blah. Like no user should ever see a Postgres error message. Much as I'm a fan of pushing things down into the database, don't ever show a user a Postgres error message or other things like that. But in this case, we're users of these programs. And so there's ideally some other... Granted, I actually don't know who maintains all of these libraries, who are the open source heroes that are out there maintaining OpenSSL and LibreSSL and all of these different truly foundational programs. There's a lot of work that happens there that uh, we just get to benefit from and build on top of. But I don't remember having this particular error, but I've had very similar ones, particularly around like dynamic library linking and the just throwing stack overflow copied brew install commands at it for as long as I possibly can. I hate that feeling so much and feeling like your computer's just broken and probably never going to come back. But I'm glad you got on the other side of it. The ones that made me most nervous throughout my research while I was trying to figure out how other people had resolved to the issue were two of them was one where people were encouraging to use like the brew link and then adding force to it to just mm-hmm. override it. While open SSL, if you do brew info open SSL, I think this is correct. They were explicitly saying, do be very careful because <laughs> of the difference, like how Apple OS has shipped with a different like Libre SSL and you just want to make sure that you really know what you're doing and we recommend that you probably don't try to like force this linkage. And then the other one where folks were talking about overriding some security permissions that you have for linking these dynamic libraries. And they're like, well, if you restart your laptop in like recovery mode, then you can change these preferences. I'm just immediately like, nope, no friend. Thank you. It's going <laughs> to be a no for me, it. dog. But it's going to be a no for me. And I just kept moving on to other solutions. And eventually this one worked, which was great. Uh, I also took the time, once I was done with this, I always find this very therapeutic where I have spent time diving into these errors. And I'm in always that mixed state. Like At some point, I'm not in my best problem-solving mode because I was really just trying to get to the point that I could write some code. And this feels like a, a blocker at the moment. So I'm in that zone of where I'm trying really hard to find the easy fix, but not understand it thoroughly, which would have probably helped me get to the fix easier. So that's one thing that's tough to manage in the moment. But then two, the part that's therapeutic is then once I was done, I was keeping notes as to like the errors I was seeing, the things that I had tried. So then I went back to our ThoughtBot internal dev channel and I just shared like a thread that was like, I'm going to share this error I ran into. I'm going to share the journey I went down and share the result just in case someone else then comes along and searches in our dev channel for this error, then they'll have that to look at. Or they'll also know that they could reach out to me as well. So perhaps I could help them because I also went down that path. So that always helps. I feel like to just put it out into the world. Just share it in some form. Yeah, there's a there's always an XKCD, but there's definitely an XKCD about the like loneliest feeling in the world is typing in a search, ending up on a stack overflow. That's just the question from 10 years ago and no answers. It's like, no, no. What happened? Did you fix it? But again, glad it worked out for you. Thank you. Today's episode of The Bike Shed is sponsored by Datadog, a monitoring and analytics platform for cloud-scale infrastructure and applications. Datadog's machine learning-based alerts, customizable dashboards, and 400-plus vendor-backed integration unifies disparate data sources and makes it easy for teams to pivot between correlated metrics and events for faster troubleshooting. Try Datadog free by starting a 14-day trial and receive a free t-shirt once you install the agent. Visit datadog.com slash thebikeshed to get started today. One other thing that has been on my mind that I thought would be a more lighthearted, since we've been talking about the world of errors, something on a, a more lighthearted note that would be to bring up, 
since I have had this week off for the move, which has been really nice just because the heart and the move itself has been hard enough. So it's been nice to have that downtime to focus on transitioning. But it also gave me some time to reflect. One thing I'm excited is that I, I didn't browse Slack or do any coding. That was really nice to take downtime from that. And then something else that I saw that is sticking with me that I am carrying forward was talking about the importance of establishing a morning ritual that helps you connect to the part of you that makes you feel happy to be alive. Uh, so an example of that would be if you wake up first thing in the morning and you check emails. So like your mind and your to-do list is immediately running through your head. So you're starting your day like already like hitting the ground running and focusing on work. And then the alternative to this is to start your day with a moment of contentment as a way to anchor your day to that feeling and then have a way to revisit that feeling or that practice that brings that feeling to your day. So when your stress level starts to rise, you can revisit that, whatever that ritual may have been in the morning. So for me, I really love the outdoors and food. Uh, so I usually will start my day with like a walk and a really like solid breakfast, something that I know will get me through till noon. But just like those small little habits, uh, I'm really enjoying. And it's that sort of like downtime during like vacation or when I'm away from work that I have moments to like think about this and sort of like create that habit to then try to carry forward into work. Because then as soon as I start work next week, then I'll start making excuses to be like, oh, I don't have time for a walk or I don't have time to like cook breakfast and stuff. So I'm bringing a little bit of uh, self-care into our podcast, I guess is what I'm doing right now. It's good. The world needs some. Do you have any um, things like that that you do? I don't know. Like contentment rituals is what I'm going to call them right now. I do. Uh, I'm a deeply habitual person. I really like my habits and routines. And if anything, the quarantine period and working from home has really, really allowed me to sort of dial in. But actually, it's weird that you bring this up today because just today, for the first time in a while, I made my bed. Uh, which is, you know, that sounds like a simple thing and or a thing that people are supposed to do, which for the longest time I did just in my defense, but then got out of the habit for some reason. And this morning, very purposely, I was like, no, 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 today I'm going to do that. Uh, and actually, my office is right up the hall from my bedroom, so I can see the edge of the made bed right now. And it's just one of those little things that sort of frames the day and and has that like it feels like it should not have the mental impact that it does but i just feel much better so I'm, I'm hoping you need to keep me honest now will i continue with my bed making ritual we'll see we'll see how it goes but i'm i'm hopeful it was good i'm one day in so you're <laughs> saying there's a chance it's a daily choice one day in I, I got faith in you i'll also check in with you i appreciate that but in other uh, self-care rituals, <laughs> I recently talked about upgrading a database, uh, upgrading the Postgres version on a production application. It's those, you know, little, does this database version spark joy? No, then get rid of it and get a new database version. That was a masterful pivot, by the way. I just have to call that out. Good Thank job. You. I appreciate it. <laughs> but yes, it, uh, it really does, you know, spark joy. And in this particular case, I was upgrading Postgres from version 10 to 12. Uh, there's some performance things and other stuff that was coming along with it. But one of the features that I was really excited about and that I got to take advantage of now is generated columns which are a new feature, I believe, in Postgres version 12. It exists in other database management systems and has for a while, and it's part of the SQL standard as far as I understand it, but it's relatively recent addition to at least the Postgres that's available to Heroku, which is sort of my lens to the world. But the idea here is imagine that you have a table and it's representing some events. So there's a start timestamp and an end timestamp. So started at and ended at. And that's encompassing the amount, you know, the period of time that this happened. But then we also want to know how long was that. So there's a like duration in seconds. 
And the application that I was working in essentially had this, but it was using an active record callback on that model to compute the value in Ruby in application land. And then whenever those values changed, it needed to check and make sure, you know, it's, it's updating that value. But as always, you know, there are different ways to update things. We may directly insert or for any number of reasons, it's possible for that to get out of sync. Also, active record callbacks can be very distracting that per our conversation earlier about spring. And it's like, wait, why? I don't understand. Active record callbacks are one of the things that I've lost more of my time and happiness to, I would say. And in general, I feel like there is a better solution. And in this particular case, a generated column ended up working out perfectly. So we can basically instruct Postgres to do that math for us and always keep everything in sync at the database level. So I trust it. There's no way to sneak a value in there or to circumvent the active record callbacks. This is always going to be up to date and it's going to be more performant because it's happening in Postgres. The actual version that I worked with, so the start date, end date thing is one that I'm hoping to do. But the real first version that I did was a more subtle thing where there was a column that contains sort of a comma delimited string of values which that's an aside, we probably should have never done that, but we did that. And then there was a separate column that stored the count of values in this mini little CSV in a column. And that was a very, very complicated one, but I was able to push all of that logic down into the database and the actual uh, SQL, like the migration associated with this to generate the column is generated always as coalesce array length string to array. And then that column name split on commas and then break out the pieces. But Postgres has you know functions at that level. So I was able to take what was some Ruby code, push it down into the database and ensure that we have that correctness down at that level, get the performance, all of those wonderful things. Cool. I, I may have missed a, a bit of what you said. So when you're talking about active record callbacks and how that's something that we strongly prefer to avoid because they have that bit of like magic and you're not sure where that logic is happening, you push that down to Postgres layer. So when does that action get called? Like what's actually informing Postgres like, hey, I want you to insert at this time? So Postgres will essentially manage that on its own. It's I don't actually need to think about it, but I have thought about it. And I believe I've traded an active record callback for a Postgres callback. But Postgres is in charge of that. And in general, I trust Postgres more than I trust application layer logic around data correctness or data completeness or robustness or all those sort of things. As far as I understand it, Postgres is maintaining the values in that column. And anytime we insert update or in the case of the migration, when we initially migrate and introduce this column, it did a, a quick, you know, ran through all of the values and backfilled the initial value. And then from there, any insert update otherwise, it's basically going to run that little stored procedure to put the correct value into the generated column. Ooh, okay. There is also a version of it that's truly virtual. So it's computed only at read time. And that would be ideal in this case, because it's relatively simple math. But if we could avoid having to like, write it every time we change that other field and only compute it on demand, that would be even better. Postgres does not, as far as I understand it, support the virtual style of generated columns. So we have to actually store it, which is fine and totally works out. The performance is better in this case, et cetera, et cetera. But I think MySQL actually has the virtual style, which seems nifty. I will say Rails does not know about this directly. So in terms of the migration, I had to write the migration as raw SQL which was fine. I was comfortable doing that. But like, as an example, there are other, say like the Postgres array type, Rails is aware of that. And in a migration, I can say t.array and have Rails generate the relevant SQL schema update information and all of those sort of things. But in this case, I had to sort of drop down and do that myself. But everything else worked fine. I was very careful with the rollout. I basically introduced this virtual column, 
put that out in production but didn't use it i just had it there to make sure like is anything gonna yell when i do this is rails just gonna suddenly be like there's a column that i don't know about what happened how this value change uh but that did not happen and then i eventually did a comparison between the old column and my new generated column to make sure all of the values matched up which all but five did for three million records those five were wrong because the old one was you know had gotten out of sync a few times but the new one was correct so we went with the new one the generated one that is fancy. That's really neat. Your use of the word virtual is intriguing to me. So I just want to make sure that I totally understand. If I were to look at the database schema, would I see that column? Or is it something that only when I'm interacting with that particular record that then I'm going to see a value for that column? This is just going to be my best guesses based on what I've read. I'm not actually certain about this, but I believe in both the generated and the virtual version, you will see it in the schema. So it's it's a column and for all consuming purposes, it's the same. The difference is, and again, Postgres doesn't actually support this, but I think in MySQL, the difference would be in the case of generated and stored, you are actually writing a value. And so you know, the data on disk actually contains that value versus the virtual version is computed when you read. And so you don't have the additional storage overhead you only do the calculation to compute that value when you're reading it. So when you select star, you know, you're going to actually compute that on demand on the fly. I see. Okay. So we've got two different Postgres features, it sounds like, or we've got two different features. One of them is you are adding the columns dynamically, or you added the columns dynamically with Postgres. And then you have what we've called a Postgres callback, which I like, or pushing down the active record callback into Postgres. So then we are updating a column anytime there's like a, a create or delete or upsert to that record. And then there's also the idea of like a virtual column, which would then work more with if you wanted to read data for a record, but then Postgres, or in this case, MySQL would also say, well, there's additional data that I know you want as well. So I'm going to return that virtual column. Right. And I think it would only run when you select that column, if we're doing the virtual one. Again, Postgres doesn't support the virtual one, but that's fine in my my case. It's interesting to compare the like active record version where it's very, very imperative. It says, after create, run this calculation logic and assign this different value and then save that all to the database. Versus in Postgres, and this is sort of true of SQL overall, it ends up just being very declarative. I'm just saying this column is defined to be coalesce array, blah, 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 this bunch, the sequence of functions, but it is purely a definition of what it is as opposed to, hey, whenever anyone inserts a value, then go ahead and recalculate this and store it in there. It, it ends up being a much more discrete. And so again, I don't need to think about when Postgres is running this. I just trust that Postgres is going to keep it up to date because I trust Postgres good friend. <laughs> yeah, I like the idea very much of pushing this down to the Postgres layer, because as you and I have established, uh, that's one of our preferred strategies. But there is an interesting trade-off where we're talking about active record callbacks. We're not a fan of those because they're sneaky. They can be hard to track down, understand when they're happening. But this is taking it to another layer where it would be even harder to track this down. So if you were new to this code base and you realize that there is this column that you can interact with, but you're having trouble understanding how it's getting updated, you're going to have to find that migration that's actually inserting that functionality into Postgres to then understand how this column is being maintained. Yeah, in general, I think the person implementing something always has the best knowledge of it. And so right now I'm like, oh, yeah, I read a bunch about these generated columns. They're awesome. And someone else might come along and be like, I don't know what any of that is. Uh, I will say, though, in the DB, this has to be the structure, I'm pretty sure. So this forced us into the DB structure file, though we already had that anyway. 
But if you look at that, or if you look at the schema as far as Postgres will write it out, the actual schema for that column is, this is a big int, not null, generated always as, and then the string. So you will see it there wherever you look at that. But like you said, there are still, you know, you have to know some amount about that and you may be surprised by it. There is also a small edge case where because active record doesn't have this value, that value gets created in the database. I think it gets automatically returned when there's like an insert statement. I think the nature of that is like insert values, blah, into table, blah, returning and presumably active record will ask for returning star or returning everything. I don't know if it has to enumerate it or what, but hopefully it would get that value in the return trip from the database when it creates the record. But I'm actually not sure if that works. I've definitely run into issues before where it was like, let's generate the UUID in the database. And those values were nil in active record land. And that was bad. So there are definitely edge cases and always trade-offs and things. But thus far, it's been fantastic is my summary. Nice. And yeah, that's a good point about the schema. I've been living in a schemaless world for long enough that I, I totally forgot. Of course, that's a that's a good place to look as well. And instead, I've been leveling up more Postgres skills where I'm used to now dropping into Postgres to examine tables and understanding what exists. Although Active Record has some really nice helpers as well, where you can check to see what columns exist and it will return information about those columns. So you can drop into a Rails console versus dropping into the Postgres level to examine what columns exist for a table. So that's really cool. But yeah, with that, uh, I think we should wrap up. Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show was produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a rating or even a review in iTunes as it really helps other people find the show. If you have feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. And I'm at S. Vicari. Or you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.